MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, February 18th, 2022. Today, a judge rules that Donald, Ivanka and Jr. must sit for depositions in the New York Attorney General's civil case against the Trump Organization. The 1-6 committee weighs a subpoena for Ivanka Trump. The Oversight Committee asks the GSA to terminate the Trump lease on the old post office in the fallout of his accounting firm declaring his financial statements unreliable. And Sussman files a motion to dismiss John Durham's indictment. I'm your host, Allison Gill. All right, we've got kind of an interesting and weird show for you today. Alexander Vinman and Rachel Vinman had to postpone till next week. They got an important call they had to do today. So today I'm actually going to be talking, and this is serendipitous, because Adam Klasfeld is going to be joining us. He did gavel-to-gavel coverage of the hearing today where the judge ruled that the New York Attorney General can get the depositions of Donald, Ivanka, and Jr., which isn't a surprise, but it's a very nice win. And the eight-page ruling has some zingers in it, and we're going to go over that with Adam a little bit later. And then we have the good news with Amy Carrero and some news just dropped. Okay, we got, you know, the whole Sussman Durham drama that was, you know, ginned up by a bunch of conspiracy theories and abusive, in my opinion, court filings by John Durham over this past weekend in his inquiry to look into conflicts of interest. And then he goes off on a bunch of paragraphs about stuff that has nothing to do with the inquiry into conflicts of interest and just was there to rile up Trump's base and make Donald Trump happy. Well. Now, as expected, I wasn't expecting this until Friday, but it came today, Thursday, as I'm recording this, we now have the motion to dismiss the indictment filed by John Sussman's lawyers. And then additionally, we have another document, another filing by John Durham in the case, and that's a motion to strike or his his motion to deny the motion to cross motion to strike filed by Sussman at all. I know it's very confusing. We'll get to it. But It's going to be a very weird show because I'm going to go over these things unscripted. So you might get a little peek behind the curtain of how my mind reacts when I read these filings, because I'm going to be reading one of them with you for the first time. So anyway, we've got a lot of other news to get to. Big news today. So let's do it. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Lead story today. The judge hearing motions in the New York Attorney General Tish James's civil case against the Trump Organization has ruled that despite trying to quash her motion, Donald, Ivanka and Don Jr. must sit for depositions within 21 days and produce documents within 14 days. You'll remember on yesterday's show, I went over the embarrassing self-own when Donald released a statement countering his own attorney's pleadings filed the day before. Well, that decision has been made. And it's a big one. As I said in the beginning, I'm going to be talking to Adam Klasfeld. He covered it gavel to gavel. He was there. He live tweeted it. It's a great follow on Twitter at Klasfeld Reports if you're not following him. That'll be a bit later in the show. And we're going to talk about possible appeals, what it means to take the fifth in a civil case versus a criminal case, what happens if they defy the order. They can't. And how this could impact the criminal case over in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office you know, because they've joined forces, Wonder Twin Powers, New York Attorney General, Manhattan DA. And I'm also going to ask him about some of the standout bench slaps 
in the judge's eight-page ruling. So stick around for that. Also today, from Hugo Lowell at The Guardian, the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol attack is considering issuing a subpoena to Ivanka Trump to force her cooperation with the inquiry into her dad's efforts to return himself to power on January 6th. And that's according to one of Hugo's sources familiar with the matter. Any move to subpoena Ivanka and, for the first time, force any member of Trump's own family to testify against him would mark a dramatic escalation in the 6th January inquiry that could amount to a treacherous legal and political moment for the former president. The panel is not expected to take that crucial step for the time being. That's according to the source. And the prospect of a subpoena to the former president's daughter emerged in discussions about what options remained available after she appeared to refuse a request for voluntary cooperation. I guess they just haven't heard from her. But the fact that the members on the select committee have started to discuss the subpoena, even consider it, suggests they believe it may ultimately take such a measure and the threat of prosecution, should she defy it, to ensure her appearance at a deposition on the Hill. They better shake a leg, though. It's almost March. Uh, We'll see if their April time frame for public hearings holds. They have to finish this up by the end of the year, should Republicans take control of the House, because they'll be dismantled. They know that, though. They're very smart. They're smarties. And they're smarty pants. They're great lawyers. I'm sure that we don't need to keep telling them time's running out. Uh, They know. And it might not. We got a vote and numbers too big to manipulate. Vote blue over Q. But again, they don't need me to tell them that time is of the essence. In other news, a House committee, the Federal Oversight Committee, has urged federal agency, that's the GSA, Thursday to consider terminating the lease on Trump's D.C. downtown hotel. And here's why. And we're starting to see the financial fallout from Mazars breaking up with Donald on Valentine's Day. The House Committee on Oversight and Reform cited accounting firm Mazars' recent announcement that it's dropping the Trump organization as a client and stating that a decade of the company's financial statements cannot be relied upon as accurate. Quote, new information, including that former President Trump may have submitted inaccurate financial information to the federal government to obtain this lease, and that he stands to reap millions in profit from selling this lease, reinforce the serious ethical and legal concerns previously raised by the committee. That is leaders of the Democratic Committee in a letter to the GSA, obtained by NBC News. The House committee last year disclosed financial filings showing that the Trump International Hotel lost more than $70 million from 2016 to 2020. Mazars had submitted those filings to the GSA, and the landlord of the historic building known as the old post office. GSA is the landlord. Quote, we request you consider terminating the old post office building lease to former President Trump and the Trump Organization under the authority provided in Article 27 of the lease and end once and for all the grave damage this inappropriate lease has done to presidential ethics and integrity in the government contracting. All right. Just now breaking. Sussman's attorneys from Latham Watkins, have filed their motion to dismiss the one-count indictment brought by Bill Barr's special counsel, John Durham. And because of the timing of this news, like I said, I'm going to have to go over this with you unscripted, as well as a Durham filing responding to Sussman's motion to strike the political narrative, the conspiracy theory narrative, from Durham's latest filing, his inquiry of conflict of interest that came out this weekend that everyone on the right-wing, right-wing nutjobs is freaking out about. Now, again, that's a mouthful of legal jargon, but I'll break it down for you. So, as we know, one of the only things to come out of the Durham investigation into the oranges of the Trump-Russia investigation is the indictment of lawyer Michael Sussman for allegedly lying to FBI General Counsel Jim Baker when he gave him a tip 
that a server in Trump Tower was communicating with Alpha Bank in Russia. The indictment by Durham, you know, the Sussman indictment, was so vague. Sussman's lawyers filed what's called a bill of particulars, a very rare filing, because they had to ask for the statement that Durham considers a lie. He didn't even give, he didn't even say, here was the statement that was made. This is what is a lie. It was very vague. And whether he was charging 18 U.S. Code 1001A or 1001B, which is lying or omitting, and they're therefore lying. Because if you don't know what you're being charged with, you cannot possibly defend yourself. And that's why they filed this bill of particulars shortly after the indictment came out. They said, we need all this information. And so, you know, I was talking to Andrew Torres on Clean Up on All 45, and I'm like, we can't file anything until we know what you're even charging us with. But something I noted here on The Beans and on Clean Up on All 45 a while back was that the alleged lie lacked materiality. It wasn't a material lie. Durham said Sussman told the FBI he wasn't there on behalf of any client. That's the lie. They didn't give a statement. They just said he, did, he failed to tell them he was there on behalf of any client. Durham alleged that he was there on behalf of the Clinton campaign. And had the FBI known that, they might have done things differently. They might have analyzed the data differently. They might have investigated differently. And if you've been listening for a while to this show or to clean up on aisle 45 or following my tweets, you might have heard me yelling about the, all the might-haves. How can you possibly show materiality if it's just all might-have? I might-have. They might-have. And this emotion so far from a cursory glance looks like that's what, that's what they're trying to dismiss it on. He filed this motion to dismiss before he even got answers in for his bill of particulars, because he has filed to dismiss the indictment just on the materiality of the alleged lie alone. In other words, we don't need to know exactly what the lie was for us to know it wasn't material and therefore doesn't even meet the elements of a 1001 charge, whether it's 1001A or 1001B. It doesn't matter. It's not material. It's ancillary, right? And so I'm actually going to go over here to the filing, read you the introduction. This is a case of extraordinary prosecutorial overreach. It has long been a crime to make a false statement to the government, but the law criminalizes only false statements that are material, false statements that matter because they can actually affect a specific decision of the government. By contrast, false statements about ancillary matters, false statements about what Blackstone called trifling collateral circumstances, are immaterial and cannot give rise to criminal liability. Accordingly, when individuals have been prosecuted for providing tips to government investigators, they've historically been charged with making false statements only where the tip itself was alleged to be false, because that is the only statement that could impact a specific decision to commence an investigation if the tip is false. You give somebody, you go to the FBI, you give them a false tip, they start an investigation based on it, find out that your, your tip was a lie. Yeah, we'll charge you. That's material. You made us investigate something that wasn't even real. But he goes on here to say, that's the only statement that could affect the specific decision to commence an investigation. Indeed, the defense is aware of no case in which an individual has provided a tip to the government and has been charged with making any false statement other than providing a false tip. It's the only time. But that's what happened here. Now, in the fall of 2016, he continues, Sussman, a prominent national security lawyer, voluntarily met with the FBI to pass along information that raised national security concerns. He met with the FBI, in other words, to provide a tip. There is no allegation in your indictment, 
Mr. Durham that the tip was false. There's also no allegation that he even believed the tip he provided was false. Rather, Sussman has been charged with making a false statement about an entirely ancillary matter about who his client may have been when he met with the FBI, which is a fact that even special counsel's own indictment fails to allege had any effect on the FBI's decision to open an investigation. Mr. Sussman did not make any false statements to the FBI, but in any event, the false statement alleged in the indictment is immaterial as a matter of law. Furthermore, allowing this case to go forward would risk criminalizing ordinary conduct, raise First Amendment concerns, dissuade honest citizens from coming forward with tips, and chill the advocacy of lawyers who interact with the government. The special counsel's unprecedented and unlawful overreach should not be countenanced, and the single count against Mr. Sushman should be dismissed for the reasons set forth in greater detail below. So, pretty straightforward, right? He's basically saying, look, it doesn't matter who he was there on behalf of. Who he was there on behalf of would not have made a difference into whether or not the FBI opened an investigation. If he just said, yep, I'm working for Hillary Clinton, me and this other guy, Joffe, we found all this DNS traffic. We found it all. And uh, here it is. By the way, I'm working on behalf of the Clinton campaign, doing opposition research into Donald Trump. That would not have an impact on whether or not the FBI would open an investigation. They go, oh, you work for Hillary Clinton? Well, we, we're not going to look at that. That's not how it works. That's not how factual predication works. And as the lawyer, Sussman's lawyer stated, they cannot find one case of anyone being charged with a material lie unless the tip is false. And the tip isn't false, nor did he even believe it was false. Anyway, it goes on to a very detailed background, most of which you know. But let's see here. I want to find uh, the part where it, 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 this is the part you're going to love. Okay. So specifically, the special counsel, Durham, contends that Mr. Sussman's alleged false statement was material because here's what here's why Durham says it's material. Quote, it misled the FBI general counsel and other FBI personnel concerning the political nature of his work. It deprived the FBI of information that might have, which has which is in italics here, might have permitted it to more fully uh, assess and uncover the origins of the relevant data and technical analysis. That's not whether or not you open an investigation. That's something you might find out later in the investigation, technical analysis, including the identities and motivation of Sussman's clients. Number two, here's the other reason they said it was material. Had the FBI uncovered the origins of the data and technical analysis, the FBI might have learned that in compiling and analyzing the Russian Bank One allegations, Tech Executive One had exploited his access to non-public data at multiple internet companies to conduct opposition research concerning Trump. In furtherance of these efforts, Tech Executive One had a blah, 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 a bunch of stuff like the FBI might have learned some things about some people, but that isn't something that stops them or starts them on an investigation. Three, it was relevant to the FBI whether Sussman was providing the allegations as an ordinary citizen, merely passing along information, or whether he was instead doing so as a paid advocate for clients with political agendas. Had Sussman truthfully disclosed he was representing a specific client, it might have prompted the FBI general counsel to ask Sussman for the identity of such clients, which in turn might have prompted further questions. And in a, further questions, just, okay, 
In addition, absent Sussman's false statement, quote unquote, the FBI might have taken additional or more incremental steps before opening and or closing an investigation. But he doesn't say how it would they would have done that, just that they might have. Continues, the FBI also might have allocated its resources differently or more efficiently and uncovered more complete information about the reliability and provenance of the purported data at issue. Now, it goes into a, a long legal standard here. The indictment must sufficiently allege that Sussman's false statement was material, and it goes through all the case citations and legal standards for material lies. A false statement is material only if it has sufficient nexus to a specific government decision. And that's it's they say it's not enough that a false statement concern a specific government decision to be material. The false statement must also be capable of influencing that decision. And that requires that the false statement have sufficient nexus or close connection to the decision at issue. And then they cite case history. Courts have not hesitated to vacate false statement convictions absent a sufficient nexus. And then they give examples. So you've dismissed this shit kind of shit before. Similarly, in the Sixth Circuit case, et cetera, et cetera, here's some more that this isn't, you know, more case law, more precedent, more history. The only false statement charged is immaterial as a matter of law. So the only thing that you say that is charged here, it's immaterial. The only decision the FBI was trying to make was a decision whether to con- commence an investigation. Common sense alone dictates that when a false statement is allegedly made to an investigative agency, there is no investigation pending. The only decision that the agency could try to make is the decision whether to initiate an investigation in the first place. After all, absent an existing investigation, there's no other formal exercise of governmental power that a false statement could conceivably influence. Durham's trying to say they might have assessed things differently. They might have allocated resources differently. And the lawyers here contend that that is not a nexus to a government decision. It's just commencing an investigation that is. And then he says case law unsurprisingly confirms this common sense logic. He gives all the stuff and writing for the district judge. And then he even quotes Alito at some point to go on and say Mr. Sussman's alleged false statement could not have influenced the FBI's decision to commence an investigation. And they go on to say precedent and the allegations of the indictment or lack thereof make it clear Sussman's purported false statement is immaterial as a matter of law because it didn't influence and could not have influenced the FBI's decision whether to initiate an investigation into suspected links between the Trump organization and Alpha Bank. As set forth above, in order to influence a government decision, a false statement must have sufficient nexus or close connection. Where an agency is deciding whether to initiate investigation, a false statement about the subject matter of the potential investigation, such as a false tip, would surely be material. In such a case, there is clearly a sufficient nexus if you do a false tip. Thus, the Department of Justice historically has prosecuted legions of cases in which an individual has provided false tips to the government, among many other cases, et cetera, et cetera. And then they list them. In this case, however, Sussman is not charged with providing a false tip. Indeed, the indictment doesn't make a single allegation that Alpha Bank information was false. Moreover, the indictment does not allege that Sussman knew or should have known that Alpha Bank information was false. Instead, Sussman is charged simply with purportedly lying about whether he was acting on behalf of a particular client. That is, the alleged false statement concerns, at most, Sussman's purported motivation for providing the tip to the FBI, not the tip itself. A false statement of this sort does not have the requisite close nexus to the FBI's decision whether to initiate an investigation and thus is incapable of influencing that decision as a matter of law. Once again, immaterial. 
In fact, the defense is not aware of a single case in which the government has prosecuted, let alone convicted, a tipster for not providing a false tip, but for providing a false statement about something ancillary to the tip. For instance, the tipster's motivation for giving the tip to law enforcement in the first place. The above examples are cases in point, and then goes on to more cases. The government apparently has never prosecuted anyone for alleged false statements regarding subject matter other than reported wrongdoing makes sense, and for good reason. The materiality element limits criminal liability to false statements that matter. And on and on we go on. The same is true for paragraph of 32 of the indictment. The paragraph alleges that Mr. Sussman's purported false statement was material because it was relevant to the FBI, whether he was providing information as an ordinary citizen or whether he was doing it as a paid advocate for clients with potential business agendas or political agendas. The paragraph goes on to explain the reason would have been relevant is because it might have led the FBI general counsel to ask the identity of Sussman's clients. The FBI might have taken additional or more incremental steps, uncovered more information, Again, nowhere in the indictment is there an allegation the information was false. The, the, you know, the Alpha Bank stuff was fake. Nowhere is the allegation Sussman knew or should have known that the information was false. And nowhere in the indictment does it say the FBI would not have opened an investigation absent Mr. Sussman's purported false statement. And that's the might have, right? You have to tell me that the FBI wouldn't have and you have to tell me why they wouldn't have if they knew that Hillary Clinton sent him, which she didn't. It's very interesting. Moreover, even in the indictment's own allegations undermine any claim that a false statement could have been material. The indictment alleges the FBI might have taken additional steps had it known Sussman's purported clients. But there's no reason the FBI would have acted differently if it learned Sussman's supposed relationship with the Clinton campaign. He even goes on to say Hillary Clinton could have walked in herself and that that wouldn't have any impact on whether or not the FBI would open an investigation. Any broader reading of materiality would raise serious constitutional and other concerns. This is the chilling effect, right? Because if you start indicting people for ancillary things that they say on the side that are not material, and that's why materiality is a part of 1001 charges. If you if you start talking about how indicting people for ancillary lies or misstatements, then, then nobody's going to want to give tips to the FBI. That would chill that. And they go on to explain that the Supreme Court has constrained similarly expansive government charging decisions to ensure compliance with the Constitution, First Amendment rights, a broad interpretation of Section 1001 threatens First Amendment protected speech. And they go through that and give all the examples. According to the special counsel's theory of materiality, that if you accept his his idea of that this is material, that would imperil day to day communications between lawyers and the government. And it would. And in conclusion, for the foregoing reasons, the one count indictment against Sussman must be dismissed. I didn't think they would go after this for materiality. So I'm a little bit, whoa. I'm a little bit, whoa. I thought they would wait for their bill of particulars and then go after it for other reasons. But materiality is a big, big issue for Durham. And it's one of the reasons that I think that this would and will fail. However, as Marcy Wheeler points out, it's very rare to get a case dismissed on materiality of a lie for a 1001 charge. And it's a pretty strong one considering that they only ever indict and convict people for false tips. Anyway, this is a, I think it's a great motion. I think it's well-written. It's well-cited. There's good precedent. I personally would have added again, and I've said this a million times and I've said it to Latham Watkins, like, look, he was appointed under no authority. He shouldn't even be a special counsel, but they're going with materiality. We'll see what they say. 
And then before we get to the uh, Adam Klassfeld interview on the amazing decision in the New York Attorney General case, another brief thing was filed here by and this this by Durham now. And this is his response to the defendant to Sussman's cross motion to strike. So basically what happened over the weekend, Durham put out this inquiry for conflicts of interest. You know, one of Latham Watkins lawyers, who's not one of the lawyers representing Sussman, by the way, but one of one of the 3000 lawyers who ever worked for Latham Watkins now works at the Department of Justice. And we want the court to take a look. This, you know, that could be a conflict of interest, even though that person who is not a lawyer representing Sussman has recused from this case, should they ever touch it, which they aren't and haven't probably. And even though the Sussman and his attorneys reached out to Durham and said, dude, we'll waive, we'll, we'll waive these conflicts. No biggie. He wanted to put it on the record and then goes off on a fucking four page tear about a bunch of bullshit, a meeting with the CIA, Vodafones, spying. on. But he didn't even actually say any of that. That's just what the right wing media picked up on. And, and by the way, that CIA meeting, if anything was illegal, was done at it. The, the statute of limitations has expired. But anyway, so Sussman's lawyer said, hey, we're cool with your inquiry on a conflict of interest and we'll put that on the record. But the rest of this inflammatory trying to try this case in the media, tainting future juries bullshit, you need to strike that, judge. We, we are filing a motion to strike that from from this from these records. And if this ever does go to trial, we're going to have to seriously voir dire, which means, you know, like vet every single juror to make sure that they haven't heard or didn't care about this bullshit, which is now being blown up everywhere by Fox News and right wing idiot pundits. So they filed that motion to strike that, you know, that consp- bunch of conspiracy theory that's seeding, right? Political, you know, inflammatory statements. And so Durham has responded. And I have not looked at this yet, so we're going to look at it together. It's very short. And he, Durham says the United States of America, special counsel Durham, respectfully in opposition to the defendant's motion to strike six paragraphs from the government's February 11th, 2022 motion to inquire into potential conflicts of interest for the reasons set forth below. As an initial matter, defense counsel has presumed the government's bad faith and asserts that Durham, myself, special counsel, intentionally sought to politicize this case, inflame the media coverage and taint the jury pool. That is simply not true. The government included two paragraphs of limited additional factual detail in its motion for valid and straightforward reasons. Now, here, he's, I guess he's going to try to explain how all of that crap has to, what that has to do with an inquiry for conflicts of interest. He says, first, those paragraphs reflect conduct that is intertwined with and part of events that are central to proving the defendant's alleged criminal conduct. All right, I'm going to take a pause right here and say, Durham, that might be something you put in an indictment, but it has nothing to do with an inquiry into potential conflicts of interest. So I'll read that again. Durham says, first, all that bullshit I said reflects conduct that is intertwined with is part of events that are central to proving the defendant's alleged criminal conduct. You don't need to prove the defendant's alleged criminal conduct in an inquiry for conflicts of interest. Second, he says, the government included these paragraphs to apprise the court of the factual basis for one of the potential conflicts described in the government's motion, namely that a member of the defense team was working for the executive office of the president of the United States, EOP, during relevant events that involved the EOP. Okay, so this is where he brings in the conflict of interest. But he fails to make that tie in the actual filing. 
if third parties or members of the media have overstated, understated, or otherwise mi- misrepresented facts contained in, in my motion, which were really mealy-mouthed and certainly looked inflammatory, if, if they misinterpreted that, that doesn't undermine valid reasons for my inclusion of the information, even though it was totally irrelevant. I'm adding, I'm spicing it up a little bit, if you can't tell as I'm reading this. In light of the above, there's no basis to strike any portion of my motion. Indeed, the government intends to file motions in limine, in which it will further discuss these and other p- pertinent facts to explain why the, they constitute relevant and admissible evidence at trial. You don't need to file them. He just wants to get it out there. He wants to use the courts to get it out there. That is an abuse of courts, of the court system, of filings, piggybacking conspiracy theories and media inflammatory bullshit on, on the back of your court filings. And, the, and that, to me, is sanctionable. Sidney Powell was sanctioned for it, along with her 10 other friends in the Kraken Strike Force. And they're looking at being disbarred right now and maybe having their law license suspended. Anyway, he says, pursuant to case law and common practice in other districts and filing documents, it's just a bunch of um, bullshit. And he says, that said, to the extent of the government's future filings contain information legitimately gives rise to privacy issues or other concerns. All right. okay. so your privacy issue thing, you didn't want us to reveal any names. We won't do that in the future like we did in our bullshit irrelevant filing. For the foregoing reasons, the court should deny the defendant's cross motion to strike. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens with that. I'm more interested in what happens with the motion to dismiss. It's a tough one. It's a hard one. I truly believe in it. I think the materiality is bullshit. If it's not dismissed on that, uh, it won't hold up in court. And of course, a dismissal would be appealed. We'll see. We'll see what happens. All right. Sorry for the very long A block today, but those just got dropped on me. Thank you for allowing me to do those unscripted. Uh, I hope it wasn't too rambling. I hope it made sense. And of course, if you have any questions at all, you can send them to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. I'll be happy to see if I can answer them for you. There's a lot going on with this, with this case, even though it is the stupidest, most minuscule, ridiculous, immaterial case ever in the history of me looking at cases, which isn't very long, five years now. (laughs) All right, we will be right back with Adam Klasfeld. Everybody stick around. After the Hey everybody, it's AG and the Daily Beans today is brought to you by Helix Sleep. I love sleep. Sleep is my favorite thing. I do it all the time. I try I love naps. I love I love my bed. And I especially love my bed since I hooked up with Helix. Uh, because before I was tossing and turning, I was waking up sore, I couldn't get a good night's sleep. I thought it was stress and anxiety, but I was sleeping on a mattress designed for somebody else's sleep preferences and not my own. And that's what's amazing about Helix. If you go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans, you can take their two-minute sleep quiz online and it'll match you with a mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. They have body temperature regulating mattresses. If you sleep hot or you sleep cold or you get night sweats, which I do, they have ones that align your spine so you don't wake up sore if you've got if you've, you know, if you've got back stuff. And, and they have a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers too. Helix Midnight was what I needed because I'm a side sleeper and I like a medium firm mattress. So they matched me with that. And I am getting the best night's sleep of my life. I fall asleep fast. I stay asleep all night. I wake up feeling refreshed and alert. And as you know, you know the drill. They have over 12,000 five-star reviews. They were awarded number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 and 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. And of course, as you know, leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine recommend Helix mattresses to improve your sleep. They have a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. 
They'll pick it up free if you don't love it. And they have financing options, too, and flexible payment plans. So a great night's sleep is never far away. And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. If you happen to have any my pillows, any Mike Lindell pillows in the house, now is your chance to replace them. Two free pillows for you at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash dailybeans for up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. All right, everybody, welcome back. I am joined by the, the one and only who's been looking at this New York Attorney General's case from gavel to gavel today, listening to it from Law and Crime, Adam Klasfeld. Hello. Hi. Hi. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. That was amazing Twitter coverage today, by the way. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, I like to get into the details. <laughs> yes, and there were a lot and a lot of really bad lawyering in my just my personal opinion, a lot of uh, seemingly again with with uh, Trump attorneys using the courts to sort of campaign or spread conspiracy theories. And, and it's got to be just getting on everybody's nerves, mine included, but some judges, but they have to be even keeled and cool. So let's talk about what what happened today, because listeners are aware we're all caught up on the 115 page filing that she that the New York Attorney General Tish James dropped. And then this week, Trump's attorney's response, pleadings to that filing. And then, of course, Donald's public statement, which totally he just stepped in it with. And now we have this hearing today to to where we were expecting. I didn't know we were getting ruling so fast, but we were definitely going to have a hearing about whether or not, you know, the motion to quash, you know, the deposition requests and and stuff like that. So tell us what went on today in, in the courtroom. Well, what went on today was a pretty whirlwind sequence of events. We had a kind of freewheeling two-hour hearing where, as you said, it sounded a little bit like people going on the stump, uh, particularly Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, at one point said that the investigation was probably because Letitia James thinks that President Trump could win again in twenty in 2024. Just comments like that, where it sounded more like a political campaign than a kind of legal argument, but it was to advance these claims of selective prosecution and political acts to grind, and it didn't resonate before Justice Angoran. Um, he kind of signaled early on in the hearing where he was leaning that said, why, uh, what is the evidence that her statements, and and to be clear, uh, Attorney General James had did say on the stump that she, that she thought that uh, a sitting president could be indicted. She said that, for example, that uh, we need to find the money laundering that Trump did uh, and in certain statements. And that was what kind of brought the claims of a political prosecution. But since she took office, she made statements like that. She's said, you know, the most routine comment is nobody is above the law and uh, saying that she'll follow the facts wherever they lead. And essentially, the allegations of selective prosecution didn't go anywhere at the end of the two-hour hearing, Justice Gordon said, we'll have a ruling to you by 3 p.m. 3 p.m. rolls along, and it's a blistering ruling, this just scathing eight-page ruling that talks about how the, that Attorney General James would have been in blatant, and this is a direct quote, blatant dereliction of duty if she had not opened an investigation, if she had not issued those subpoenas. Uh, she 
ordered Trump and Trump's children to sit for depositions within 21 days of the ruling. And the judge did say during the proceedings that she'll that he will lead, leave a little bit of time for them to appeal. I think we can pretty much agree an appeal is inevitable. That's what uh, Trump's attorney said uh, during the proceedings, the other pr- attorney, Ron Fischetti. So that's no surprise there. But it was and I just can't emphasize it enough. You know, that's one of the lines. It would have been a blatant dereliction of duty not to investigate. He said that there was copious evidence of possible fraud uh, that sparked the investigation. In another point, we're talking about, you mentioned the big Mazars news about his accounting firm cutting ties. Well, the Trump team put a kind of positive spin on that, and it led to one of the most uh, scorching lines of the ruling, where the judge compared it, uh, said it was Orwellian, compared it to Lewis Carroll, Carroll and Humpty Dumpty, for good measure, said that it was a kind of stock and trade of alternative facts. You know, this was, and that just scratches the surface of what a resounding defeat of these arguments they were in court. Um, Another part of the ruling, you had Trump's attorneys arguing today through the proceedings uh, when they got away from the more political arguments and the arguments of uh, politically motivated prosecution and investigation. They got to a kind of constitutional issue, and it gets a little thorny. Essentially, um, it's as it has become clear uh, when Letitia James is investigating uh, the Trump organization and the Trumps. This is a civil investigation, but it is running parallel with this criminal investigation. And that criminal investigation has led to the indictment of former CFO Alan Weisselberg. It's led to the indictment of the Trump Corporation doing business as a Trump organization for a variety of tax fraud and, and offenses. And so the essential argument of Trump's attorneys is, hey, this can, that this is at least on purportedly a civil uh, investigation, but if you depose former President Trump, if you depose Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr., uh, these can go and be shared with the DA for an active criminal investigation and that it would essentially strip them of their rights. Um, And the judges... That's true for anything. That's true for any civil deposition, unless you're given some sort of immunity. And uh, I love the judge coming back and saying what, you know, what uh, I on, on Clean Up on Aisle 45, this other show that I do with Andrew Torres, who brought up the old, you can't use the fifth as a sword and a shield, both a sword and a shield. And I thought that that was And as a matter of fact, that, yeah, that line, the sword and the shield, was uh, not only mentioned by your astute co-host on Clean Up on Aisle 45, but also mentioned by Justice Angoran. I'm sorry to interrupt because that was exactly the word that he used in his ruling. And as a matter of fact, he said, essentially reminding the Trumps they have every right to invoke their Fifth Amendment uh, right against self-incrimination. And in fact, Eric Trump did that more than 500 times. Uh, He made a point to note that in the hearing. He also made a point to note that in the ruling. So all of uh, just uh, this was a blistering uh, slapdown, essentially, of 
the Trump team's legal arguments, both of uh, the former president and of his adult children. Now, did did they even have to bring up? Did the lawyers even have to bring up? Because I know as soon as Donald made his public statement, basically confessing to thing to to the you know to the fact that he does know things despite the pleadings that his attorneys filed saying we don't know enough about that or we don't know anything about brand values for for example or what my net worth was in in 2014 and he and he contradicted that with a public statement and a, and also a letter from Mazars that puts him right in the crosshairs of <laughs> of being liable potentially I should say did that did his public statement come up at all in the hearing or in the ruling or did they even not have to go there? They didn't really go there. This hearing was directed on two essential points of argument. It was a selective prosecution bucket. Um, we saw Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, uh, flub the kind of concept saying that Trump was part of a protected class because of his uh, politics. Now, protected That's class what stood out to me. That's right. what stood out to me when you tweeted that out. That, and, and, and the judge was like, it's not a protected class. Like that is what really stood out to me. And I wanted to ask you, what was the judge's tone and tenor when answering to that? Well, funny enough, I believe one of the first people to respond to that was his clerk, who was equally incredulous. Uh, you know, it it kind of ranks up there. I remember in the post-2020 election litigation, Rudy Giuliani going up in court in one of the uh, election overturning lawsuits in Pennsylvania in a federal court. And he was asked what standard of review to apply. And he said the normal one. Well, there, what kind of normal scrutiny? Now, there's no such thing as normal scrutiny. And the kind of idea that uh, Trump is a protected class by nature of his politics under New York law, I think most legal observers would view that as kind of the same kind of normal scrutiny flub, something that just really stands out there. So that was a highlight. But really, the hearing didn't go into there was very little uh, discussion of Mazars. There was very little discussion uh, about this was an argument on the legal theories rather than the revelations. The yeah, the, whatever, the yeah. facts that have come out. Uh, yeah. Team so Trump that's the was, kind of stuff that would come out in a, in a, a trial or like that, not just this one. We're like, hey, I've got the right to depose people and here's why. And then saying, no, right. you don't, because he's a protected class <laughs> or or, you know, hey, but if we plead the fifth, that'll make us look bad because of that. You know, what is it? Negative inference or whatever that right. can be used against you in a civil case. But but if we tell if we tell the truth, then that can be used as in a criminal case. And I'm just thinking, well, stop breaking the law, asshole. And you won't have to worry about putting yourself between a, a dildo store and a crematorium, as it were. <laughs> Right. Well, um, I, you know, I don't believe that was the, the phrase that Judge Angoran used. However, <laughs> I just always go back with the Four Seasons landscaping. I have. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. But he did use some uh, highlights of Trump sloganeering, MAGA sloganeering uh, back at the Trumps in the ruling he talked about alternative facts. So we get that in there. Um, but essentially, it was a legal argument over whether there needed to be a stay of the civil proceedings because of the ongoing criminal proceedings. And eventually, the 
judge found that there shouldn't be. Um, this will likely be appealed, um, but it, it seemed it, clear it that, that be like the sword and the shield situation. Sorry to interrupt you, but but if they had a stay, to so they wouldn't have to be deposed in the civil case, then. If they went to the criminal case, they could plead the fifth and that cannot be used against you in a criminal case. And then when that shuts down, then you can go to the civil case and talk because it can't be used against you in a closed criminal case. So that's the that's using it as a sword, right? And that's exactly what the judge found. He basically said using that exact phrase, you can't use the Fifth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment as both a sword and a shield. And he swatted down that sort of idea. And that was essentially once he rejected the stay, he rejected quashing of the subpoena. Now, that part wasn't a big surprise. As we know, Eric Trump tried to quash his subpoena and tried to delay his deposition before the election. And that failed as well. And he he was deposed. And that's how we know that he asserted his Fifth Amendment rights more than five. 500 times. Uh, And at that point, they also argued that this appears to be criminal. Now, a lot has happened since then. There have been indictments since then. So things have changed. But the landscape in many other ways is quite similar to how it's always been. Yeah. And and same is true if you were deposed in a civil case and you said something incriminating and, and the feds took it up you know, to, to investigate. I mean, that's just how, how shit works when you break the, when you break the law. <laughs> and I, you know, I was talking about with my friend Andrew was like, well, she could just wave negative inference and say, all right, I won't bring it up. I won't bring that. I won't bring it up that you pleaded, you know, the fifth 500 times. She could have done that and just this whole thing had been thrown out, but she didn't even need to. And so, and, and I think because like you said, because we, we just went through it with Eric Trump, the writing was kind of on the wall. So what can, how, how, how long can an appeal delay this? And this doesn't go to Supremes, right? This just goes to through the New York state courts. This is going up through the state level. This Any appeal will have to be quick. I mean, we read right there in the ruling that in 21 days, there are going to be depositions. That, is, that was the judge's order. Uh, another ruling was, uh, you know, they could request a stay and that could gum things up. But then again, the appellate division would have to uh, grant that stay and grant it pretty rapidly. There's, uh, I believe, 14 days before uh, former President Trump must must essentially provide the requested documents. So documents in 14 days, 21. So we're talking about he has two weeks to either persuade the appellate division to put a stop, at least maintain the status quo while they appeal, or essentially get the judge's ruling overturned in that time frame. So it, you know, this I don't is see that happening. Right. This is I, something I, I, yeah. we will we will find out what happens within two to three weeks. You know, that that's yeah. the time frame that's happening here. Um, we'll learn whether there's a stay or whether there's a ruling. Very, very short order. Yeah, I see the I see the appellate court coming back very quickly and saying lower court ruling stands. Uh, we, we did this with Eric Trump. We do this with everyone. Sorry, we're not, you know, no and no stay. And then an appeal to I, I guess it's the same sort of uh, structure as our national courts. And that's the New York State Supreme Court uh, or is it Superior Court, whatever they call it. And then them saying, no, we're not going to do this. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I don't think. <laughs> I think this will get batted down 
pretty quickly and pretty handily based on this. And I mean, that's what's great about an eight page thorough ruling is that it tees it up nicely for for the appeals court and and and, you know, any appeals going up to say, no, this is we this ruling stands. This is a pretty, you know, well explained, well thought out ruling here. But we'll see what happens. Maybe out of an abundance of due process and and deference to criminal defendants, they might get, get a stay and, you know, consider it while they consider it. Uh, but I don't think it will take that long. We'll see what happens, though. You're right. And it's only going to be a few weeks. Right. We'll find out very soon. All right. Thank you very much, everybody. You must follow Adam Klasfeld. Klasfeld reports on Twitter for all of the seriously any court case that you care about. He's listening to and tweeting about. I promise. And also, law and crime is is that's a free thing, right? No, you don't have to subscribe or anything, right? You just go mm-hmm. and read it. Just visit lawandcrime.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam Klasfeld. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Together, we host the Spy Talk podcast. Every week, we delve into the worlds of intelligence, foreign policy, military operations, and the intersection of all three in national security issues. Spycraft, cybersecurity, violent extremism, whether at home or abroad, technology's impact on intelligence gathering. We cover it all and much more. We interview former spooks, military officers, government officials, journalists, and national security researchers, leveraging our backgrounds in military intelligence and homeland security, along with our decades of experience as journalists and news organizations like Newsweek, The Washington Post, and CNN. So join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. As if we didn't have enough good news today, we have more good news. And because it's Friday, we're joined by the famous and amazing Amy Carrero. Hello. Hiya. Big news Hi. day. Very big news day. Yeah, Ooh. lots of stuff happening. And it was um, some good stuff, some really good stuff. You know, Donald and Ivanka and uh, Don Jr. have to testify, have to be what? deposed wait, in the wait. New York Attorney General. Yeah. Yep, they lost oh their... Oh, my God. I was at work all day and I haven't looked online. I'm so excited to read your uh, tweets on this. Have you have you <laughs> done a deep dive yet or not yet? I did a deep dive earlier in this show. So when it comes out oh, tomorrow, you hell can hear yeah. it. First and thing in the morning, baby. I've done a couple of tweets on it. It's pretty great. Ooh, uh, I, I love, really it. love it. Can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be good. But we have more good news. We have listener submitted good news. And if you have any good news or cases you want to have Amy's court decide, or if you want to play What the Mutt, or just send in pictures of your dogs and cats or turtles or bird, your pets, your pod pets, send them in. Halloween pictures are acceptable all year round. And of course, whoopee stories I love. And and whatever you're crafting, what what our makers are making, send that to us on your website and we'll get it out. By the way, if you want to do that, dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. I'll kick us off, Amy, with a submission from Tony. No pronouns given. This is Zidi, a seven-year-old rescue. We love her, but sometimes I think we should have named her Pesto. <laughs> oh, what a baby. Looks like a little pup. I know. It looks like a German Shepherd met a Chihuahua. Yeah. Oh, such a cutie. I love ZD. Oh, and Pesto. So cute. Uh, and then from Daphne, pronoun she and her, I wanted to share the fairy lights I created to gift my children 
for Valentine's Day. Whoa. Oh, these are beautiful. Oh, look at them lit up. Holy <gasps> shit. Are they like minis? Yeah, look at these. Wow. Man, some people are so talented. You're just like, what the fuck? <laughs> How do people so come beautiful. up with this stuff? It's so gorgeous. I would love this gift. I would use it as a nightlight. These are just Oh my beautiful. gosh, me too. Because it's not like super bright. It's like just the right vibe. Uh, awesome. Love All it. right, you want the next one here, Amy? Sure, why not? Next up is Anne, pronouns she, her. Hey, Beans Queens, I'm the mom of the spaghetti squash loving Felix. <laughs> and I just wanted to share that I am now a Patreon supporter and canceled my Spotify membership. Whoop, whoop. I am a workers comp and estate planning attorney near Scranton, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Oh my gosh, Amy. Pennsylvania. And I now have arranged with the Lackawanna County Bar Association to handle name change petitions pro bono for LGBTQ individuals who want to legally dispose of their dead name. How cool oh, is that? That's so amazing. Rad. Uh, so rad. For a pod pet tax, attach our photos of Mindy, a kitten who was abandoned by her mom in our bushes back when I was pregnant with Felix. I had to bottle feed her uh-huh, and carried her around in my shirt. Mindy thinks she is Felix's mom. They used to play through my belly uh, with her pouncing and chasing the kicks on my belly. Oh, how cute is that? And now she comes running into the room to see what's wrong if either kid cries while the other cats flee. Uh-huh. We have taken in many strays and found most of them homes, but we do have seven cats. Wow. Mindy Otto Rando, the one with the extra toes shown here looking at her infant daughter, Quinn. Dame Maggie Smith, love her. (laughs) (laughs) Ari Faust and Faust's feral mom who lives in our house, but we can't touch scaredy. Oh, Hmm. cute. It is a furry and chaotic household filled with love. Rando, who was just injured when he approached us in a parking lot and claimed us a few years back, let the kids pull fistfuls of hair without snapping at them. And we love that his extra toes help normalize different extremities in our home. Since Felix was born with two fused toes and a cleft left hand with a nubbin for a middle finger, we are grateful for our kitties, kids, and love in general. Thank you for all that you do. (gasps) Oh, my God. Look at this kitten. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Oh, my God. That baby. Oh, Oh. sweetheart baby. And the kitty with the thumbs. Do you see the thumbs? I do. Is that just like, is that... um? Isn't that like a specific kind of cat have thumbs? They're polydactyl and we call them Hemingway cats Aww. because Hemingway had like a million cats that all had thumbs. I love it. <laughs> they I love it. Apparently all came from them. This is so adorable. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing. By the way, I still can't get over the spaghetti squash Whoopi. It's just so good. So good. And thanks for your patron. That's so rad that you did that. We appreciate it. It helps us stay off Spotify. So <laughs> thanks for your support. Next up from Allison, pronoun she and her, good name. Good news, we found out today that my sister doesn't have a malignant brain tumor. She's not out of the woods yet, and this still may be serious, but hearing no cancer is always a win. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Also sharing my husband's woodworking business that he really ramped up during COVID. He makes home goods and furniture from reclaimed wood lathe from plaster walls. Uh, It has created chaos in my home and life, but he (laughs) loves it, and his work is beautiful. I've included some pictures online. He is Grego Designed, G-R-E-G-O Designed. For Whoopi Tax, I present Eeyore, my first lovey, now 50 years old. Whoa. And she can kick and 
punch. No, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm 50. A, <laughs> I'm 50 years old. I'm a Tuesday's child, clearly full of woe. So he was a match made in heaven. I'm a Sunday child, warm and wild. Yes. Awesome, Allison. Well done. This table is beautiful. Wow, the <gasps> table's amazing. And I love your backyard. Whoa, and that Whoopi's in really good shape. Oh my gosh, yes, it is. For 50? For wow. fi- and he can kick. He can He's kick. 50 years old. Stretch. <laughs> That's so great. Oh, how cool is that? Nice one. Next up, no name given, pronouns she, her. Hi, Beans Queens. Meet three generations of family lovelies. From left to right, well-loved Grandpa Bear belongs to my husband and is 73 years (gasps) old. Whoa. Gigi is my daughter's bear and just turned 40. My 10-year-old granddaughter's bear, Teddy, except for the time he was lost and had to spend the night at Ikea, has been with her every day since she was born. Over the years, I've sewed seams back together, replaced eyes, and provided holiday and special occasion clothes for the Bear family. Such sweet memories. Thanks for all you do. (gasps) Wow, dude. 73 years old, that bear. You know what? The 73-year-old looks about as old as the newest one. (laughs) It's because you don't survive a night at Ikea without some scratches. Yeah, yeah. No, that's totally true. And, you know, if you think about it, Ikea is a ground suck. Um, oh, sure. So, yeah, gravity works harder in Ikea for some reason. <laughs> in both physical and in relationships. So next up from Megan, pronouns she and her. Hello, Beans team. I have great news to share. I wrote you all several months ago about getting a job opportunity of a lifetime working as a mental health crisis responder. Yes, Whoa. Megan, I remember. My team is dispatched to calls that would be better handled by us instead Whoa. of the police. The work has been challenging, inspiring, and overall incredible. I've been working on call, but found out yesterday I will be going full time <gasps> next month. Whoa. I am beyond elated and wouldn't have been able to string together my bills while on call without the generosity of you, Allison mm. and Dana and all your amazing listeners. I can't thank you enough. So everyone who donated to pay help pay Megan's rent, it's she's going full time. She made it through and she can't thank you all enough Whoa. for pet tax. I've attached a pic of me in the field helping out some houseless folks by holding their dog while they dealt oh. with some business. I say holding, but this tiny sweet creature crawled right in my jacket and we kept each other warm for over an hour. It was the best. Oh, how cool is that? Thanks again for all you do. I wonder where this is. Is this in the States or in somewhere else? I'm like, do we have any programs like this out here? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, Mm -hmm. how amazing. Great job, Megan. Look at the little dog. That little dog was like, I am going in that jacket. This is so wonderful, Megan. I'm glad we could help out. And congratulations on going full time. You're doing incredible, amazing work. Truly. This is such an important program and such a big part of police reform. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love thank it. you for that update. Everybody, thank you for all of your submissions. If you have anything you want to send in, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. This is this was a wonderful, wonderful good news installment. Uh, Amy, do you have any uh, final thoughts before we get out of here? Um, I'm kind of excited just to head to your Twitter account right now <laughs> to catch up. <laughs> but I hope you all have a great weekend. And, you know, oh, there was a full moon in Leo yesterday which I think is supposed to be really good for like, it's it's like things are looking up kind of thing. And maybe they are. I'm Does just it saying. mess your sleep up? Because I was having a yes. hard time sleeping. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Full moons are notoriously bad for sleep. All right. I so think. that's that's what that was. Certainly yeah. wasn't my Helix mattress because they're awesome. I, I also took an edible last night and that was a big mistake on a full moon. <laughs> I was just like <laughs> up all night. <laughs> 
So I take it it wasn't an indica edible. You know what? I had no idea because my friend works for a cannabis company and sometimes she just gives me like little samples and I didn't even check to look. And so Mm. I'm pretty sure I was like, my heart was racing and I was like, my mouth is dry. I saw these wrong. But had the sativa, mm. or at least a sativa heavy high. Oh, yeah. Bread. Ready to run a marathon at 3 a.m. <laughs> and that full moon in Leo. Holy crap. I didn't yeah. know that. Thank you for telling me that because I was like, what is going on? That's it. Oh, all right. Well, everybody, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. We will be here. I'll be here Sunday for the MSW Book Club for the penultimate episode of uh, covering the book Corruptible by Brian Kloss. Next time, it's I think we start on March uh, 13th or something like that. We're going to start the book club for Wajahat Ali's Go uh, Back Where You Came From. Yeah, Go Back to Where You Came From, uh, which is just such a great book and so incredible. And he's just such a cool, funny, funny guy. And I'm really looking forward to that. And then uh, obviously Mueller, she wrote. There's a bunch of Mueller news this week for some odd reason. I don't know. Maybe it's that moon in Leo. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, we'll be back in your ears on the beans Monday morning with Dana. So everybody, until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Oh, and vote blue over Q. I've been Allison Gill. And I've been Amy Carrero. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for the Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.